This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Steven. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that the show will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. What are you guys drinking tonight? <laughs> that was a great sound. Um, as you can see, uh, clearly, I'm double fisting it tonight. Um, here I have Ooh. a hazy little IPA from Sierra Nevada, which ironically is in California, it turns out. Um, and I'm also drinking the king of the LaCroix, the key lime. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotta stay hydrated. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm drinking an Arizona Arnold Palmer oh. tea and lemonade. Classic. It's good. I am drinking a local coffee shop beverage. It's pumpkin pie chai. Oh, good gravy. That's and it's Are you iced. a fan? Is it good? Yeah. It literally tastes like someone took a pumpkin pie, like a homemade pumpkin pie, put it in a blender, and put it in a <laughs> cup filled with love. That's what it tastes like. It's so oh, divine. Yes. I found out recently that there is some cafe or something, or like it's a pie shop in Seattle that will like make pie oh. milkshakes. They will take a slice of pie and make you a milkshake with it. Oh. And I really need to try it. Oh, Portillo's in Chicago, they have a chocolate cake shake oh. where they take a giant slice of like triple chocolate cake and blend it in their chocolate shake. Oh. It's so good. My gosh. Wowzers. That's like four meals in a cup. If you, Yeah. If you're like <laughs> on the verge of like wanting to test your cardiac health, that would be the beverage that I would <laughs> consume. the place to start. Yes. Yeah. Good gravy. Okay. Oh, gravy. <laughs> Steven, last time you ended us with this quote that I really want to hear again because I like wrote it down. Well, like I wrote down that you said a quote, but I like don't remember the quote, but I remember like I wanted you to read it again. Do you mm. have it with you? Uh, you know, it. I, to my memory, it wasn't actually a quote. It was just I was introducing a concept from another podcast oh. I heard. So, Oh, JK. The show I was listening to was the Tim Ferriss show with Rabbi Sachs. And uh, they have a fantastic discussion about balancing I and we in a society and what that means for uh, different cultures. And so Rabbi Sachs was postulating that because of the strong emphasis that we as Americans place on individualism, mm. that is like the individual being the, the, like the baseline of society, right? Um, yeah. The emphasis we place on individualism has actually caused us to handle COVID exactly as you mm. would have expected from a hyper-individualist society. That being, it's all about our personal freedom. You can't mm -hmm. tell me to wear a mask and all this. And we, we don't have a good sense of we or a good sense of community in that we can step into it and say, okay, I do this so that my neighbor can mm -hmm. remain healthy as well. I do this so that my church can continue to meet for those people who like absolutely need it. I do this so that my hospital is not overrun. So he was arguing that like, we don't have a concept of collectivism at large in the U S correct. No. Correct. Yeah. We're pretty much all okay. I and no we. Okay. And that, that has caused us as a nation to handle COVID exactly as you would have expected based on a mm. society built on individualism like that. But then, so what I, I took that, I'm taking that, a step further and i'm saying that i think unless we are careful covid is going to actually cause a major shift in what we see community as it's also uh -huh. going to erode senses of community that we had before because it fundamentally covid is essentially training us to be skeptical and mistrust the people around us because we don't know how well they're handling COVID. Oh yeah, okay. I remember. I remember you saying this now. Okay. Yeah, we we don't have a good sense of how well they're handling COVID. So it's teaching, like COVID is teaching us to be skeptical and distrust 
our neighbor and people that we see on the street or in a coffee shop or in a socially distanced restaurant. Okay. Like everybody, everybody has that kind of like squint eye out of the side side of their head, mm-hmm. kind of look at everyone like, can I trust you? Have you been safe? Have you had symptoms so, in the last 14 days? So, you know, there's a term for what you're describing earlier, right? That like collective idea. There's actually a term for it. It's called Ubuntu. Have you guys heard of that word? No. I don't think so. <gasps> oh my goodness. I'm familiar with the word in terms of uh programming. <laughs> like the uh the Linux operating system. No, but so otherwise um, no. So Ubuntu is actually a Zulu word, which means like it in a general sense it means humanity. But in African culture, it means I am because we are. And it's a very collective idea of the reason why I as an individual and able to thrive is because we as a whole are thriving. And it's, you know, like it takes a village to raise a child sort of mentality, but they extend it to all of humanity and extending it to all circumstances of life. And so like if one person's hurting, we're all hurting. And so that gives them that that motivation to ensure that everyone is taken care of and that everyone is thriving in life. It's such a beautiful concept, I think. Hmm, that is wow. interesting. I yeah. am because we are. So yeah. with all that as context, because uh, I think you were using this as a, a starting point, Stephen, unless you had like a question in there. No, I do not. This was just okay. me kind of rambling at the end of last episode. My My mind initially is going towards like where maybe before we like take a deep dive into an exploratory question like maybe where do we see that same cultural equivalent in the church or or even like religion at large like do we mm-hmm. see that distinction between i and we already and if so like i believe i think at the end of the last episode i don't remember if it was me or you steven or emily one of us asked, like, what is the role of individuals within a community? Because I think we were still talking about yeah, this in the context yeah. of our community discussion. Yeah. So I think my mind is there right now. Like, where where do we see this so far in regards to religious community? Mm. Oh, that's a... What are your thoughts, Josh? Well, initially, I want to say, like, the easy one, I think, is like an individualized view of salvation, especially in like American Christianity, like the hyper, the hyper focus on personal, individualized salvation and mm-hmm. the personal relationship with the divine. But that's like also held in tension with it also like that having personal faith means being a part of the collective. So there is mm-hmm. like a little bit of tension there, like I am because we are. And I think that it's kind of unspoken for the most part. Mm-hmm. Because there is so much emphasis on the individual. And I almost wonder if Rabbi Sachs would, maybe this just isn't his area of expertise, but I almost wonder if he would agree that that phenomenon is unique to America overall, like even in religion. It definitely seems that way. Like, you know, the founding documents of our nation are ba- based on like an individual pursuit of happiness, individual mm-hmm. rights. Like you can do all you want defining what the right of the state is, but really what the constitution enshrines is getting all the way down to an individual person. Like what rights do we have as human beings? Yeah, I think, oh boy, I wasn't ready for this question, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess my other thought so far, my other answer initially is the other way I see it playing out is I personally only have an experience of Christianity because of like all the other Christians who have come before me. Like I only exist because they were. Mm, mm-hmm. So like, mm. there's also that aspect. Yeah. Kind of enter entering into a flow of consciousness going back yeah. thousands of years. Kind of. Yeah. Idea. I guess one thing that comes to mind is like acts like liturgical acts. So like um, mm. I talked about this a little bit in my no normal people, but like baptism is one that initially comes to mind because like you're seriously you're making an individual commitment in baptism but the church at least in the methodist church the church also has vows during a baptism of like we will raise this person up and so there's almost this tension of 
the person acknowledging their own baptism and then the community or the church also acknowledging that baptism and saying that they will uphold and ensure that this person is raised up in the church and cared for and that they, you know, help them on their spiritual journey, um, things like that. So that's Mm. maybe one area. But salvation was honestly the other one that came to mind, too. And you've already touched on that, Josh. So thank you for that. As long as we're talking sacraments too, consider also different denominations handling of Eucharist or communion. Uh, mm-hmm. Growing up in my Baptist context, it was it was something where you you would actually be doing the whole meal, as it were, or the symbolic meal. You'd be doing it a disservice if you took it quote unquote as an unbeliever um, because mm -hmm. then it it comes down to those passages that Paul writes something about, you know, don't eat and drink unless you eat and drink wrath upon yourself because you're holding unforgiveness in your heart toward another or, you know, however many other reasons. Um, But a more liturgical practice of the Eucharist, um, as far as I understand it, Methodism is an open table theology around communion saying all and everyone are welcome to the table to partake in this meal because it's a, it's a, it's a symbolic thing we do to show that we're knitting ourselves together around one common act. Yes, that is absolutely correct. But at the same time, I was kind of raised in a similar context to Stephen where like, it would be seen by a lot of people as like an exclusionary act, like only Christians, not like only Christians allowed, but like, I think I always heard it explained as like, if you don't believe in Jesus, then like, it doesn't make sense for you to celebrate this. And I always right. felt like that like, made sense. But like, th- I totally thought that was the norm overall until I th- heard about people who were practicing open table mm-hmm. Eucharist. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts about this, Emily. Because open, well, so open table is essentially is an invitation for everyone, but it ultimately is, I guess, a recognition or an acknowledgement that God's grace is for everyone. And so what better way to do that than to initiate conversation and to invite them to communion where they can actually physically, spiritually partake in the elements and, and start, maybe for some start, this journey towards acceptance or you know questioning their beliefs or even if they don't it's still knowing that like that invitation is there it's never going to be turned away um Hmm. i just see it as more open and it's one of those things that maybe it's an individual perspective of how we see god and is god exclusionary or is god inviting and do we want to invite all people do we want to have you know like a vip list of (laughs) Oh, sorry, you're not on you're not on the list or or things like that. And sure. I can't really say whether or not one way is right or wrong. Um, I only know of my, you know, the Methodist way, and that's just what I've known my entire life. And I just think it's so neat that also kind of sad though, that we have this open table concept, but yet we still exclude certain people to be clergy. Or we question their authority mm. as clergy, but we want all people to participate in certain acts. Like, oh, we're inviting of all people, but then there's this like fine print at the bottom that people don't mm. fully understand. So it's it's a very weird situation. Actually, I'm kind of glad we're going down this road already because, like, you're getting like going back to the individualism and collectivism kind of contrast. Like, you're already making me think about how. It does seem like in our Christian religious communities that there's a sense of like these sacramental and religious acts, whichever ones they are, serve to like, uh, I guess, like initiate the individual as a part of the community, whether it's baptism or like um, some traditions have like first communion and confirmation. Do you think that certain, what am I trying to ask here? I'm kind of forming the question, so maybe help me find it. I guess I'm thinking about like, do you think a certain like individual or collectivist mindset makes us more likely to include people regardless of these rituals or makes us more likely to like 
use the rituals to include people? I or does hmm. it even not matter? Well, and that's what I'm trying, and that's what I'm wondering is because like the idealist in me would say option one, where we would accept all people regardless. But I do honestly think that it is these acts and these moments that we have that allow the person to be invited. I don't, Stephen, what are your thoughts? This is, oh, these are whammy Mm. questions, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Uh Yeah, well done. Well done, sir. I'm trying to pull up. Mm, So I I have a few thoughts in my head. I think think your, your tendency to be either... I don't know, for lack of a better term, what we're calling like openness um, to be inclusionary. I think that kind of depends on if you're modeling your own um, sense of what inclusion means based on the God you believe in. So because what I've been what's been spiraling in my head for the last few minutes is the idea in reformed theology and the, you know, Calvinist Baptist kind of milieu I grew up in the the mental gymnastics that reformed theologians have to do with what they call common grace versus salvific or saving grace. And they say Hmm. saving grace is the, the grace that allows us to be sustained on the earth without being immediately like punted to hellfire and saving grace is only reserved for those of us who are in God's chosen elect church, Hmm. you know, the remnant whatever you want to call it. So like, if that's the God you believe in, if you, if you are, if you're having to put so many labels on grace, then, then it would be easy to say, okay, those of us who only have saving grace can participate in communion or Eucharist with us today. Uh, this, this kind of goes after the idea of confirmation or first communion or something like that, where it's mm-hmm. the church is, recognizing you as someone who has uh i don't know been deputized into the elect that's kind of the other image i have is like sure you can't you can't partake in the ritual unless you can flash your badge under your lapel you know (laughs) um yeah but that's true of like lots mm -hmm. of backgrounds like i feel like i've experienced that for baptism for instance for instance like you have to like make a proclamation or like agree with the creed or something to like indicate that you're ready to partake even if it's right. not like a long process. But and actually, I would like to circle back to Emily's point about Methodists having like a a collective uh, like contribution to a person's baptism because like I didn't have that growing up. There wasn't like baptismal vows. I didn't experience something like that until this year at an Episcopal mm, church. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's definitely not that. I've I've experienced that sort of collective we're like going to do this with you since only in like baby dedications and wedding vows, but not for stuff like baptism or communion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Sorry. I'm laughing at That's... baby dedications. <laughs> <laughs> baby. De- okay. Protestant baby dedications. It's like, it's so close to just it, like infant baptism. And yet they won't <laughs> let it happen. They won't let it just be what it's been for so many years. <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, sorry it's true. sorry did it, yes. i mean okay it again it i don't know it it seems to be like depending on what kind of theological views you hold are are you allowed to be on the the baptized team or the uh or the eucharist team i think mm-hmm. the the sense of i mean so in my i guess my personal story is when i got baptized like our church made a big deal of it but it was more of a big deal because Oh, look at that person just made their personal decision to like publicly proclaim Christ in this like very special way that we do. But I don't see John the Baptist requiring someone to sign a statement of faith to be baptized in the Jordan. So why? I don't I don't know. Yeah, but they were like already Jews. I feel like that's what someone would say. They they I mean, they were already Jews. But what he was doing was saying like this whole thing is about to be turned on its head. And in fact, he gets to be the one who turns it on his head by baptizing the very Messiah that he was like that, preparing the way point. for, right? Yeah. Mm. What? Yeah. I mean, essentially. I think here's something that is maybe easy for us to take for granted. I like that you're going back to the text because I think that we we kind of talked about this last time about 
we just forget that we're in a historical context, like a cultural context. And I feel like scholars talk about this a lot, like that context for any, especially ancient text is king. Like you have to know the context to right. have any remote understanding of what's going on. Yeah. And Absolutely. like the, the culture Jesus was in was like very community and hospitality centric. And like, we are not, we are like, a, we're in a very different context. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. And I guess like that's, I think that's what's so interesting to me about this question still of like, what's, what is the role of individuals within a community and vice versa? Because that seems to me like such a possibly like the most evergreen cultural question in social psychology we could ever ask. Because like, we're always going to have individuals and communities like in every Correct. context. Right. Yeah. So like, our our previous conversation was all about community and some of the ingredients that we were able to tweeze out for like what makes a community a community by definition would be like we have a clear goal or at least we have a consensus in the direction we're headed there's intentionality there's generosity creativity contribution um and i'd probably add like empathy like the the ability to like mm. Stand with each other and say, like, I have never experienced miscarriage, but I I still Mm -hmm. get to sit here and cry with you. And there's also trust, and which Mm. I don't think we talked about last time. But I think this this trust component is huge when it comes to what it what it means for you to be in a community. Because if we're all going to be knit together in some way, then we all have to fundamentally trust each other to. I don't know, keep our secrets or at least not gossip about us when we're not in the room. We have to trust each other to make sure we're not going to do any, I don't know, any physical or emotional harm while we're in the room together. We're not going to single someone out and just call them out and uh, like call someone up to the stage. Which like kind of goes back to your point about like the I versus we, right? That like maybe we do have this unique problem where we're like sort of looking at each other in the side eye because of our hyper individualism. Like maybe there right. is a component of that mm. in our yeah. religious context. I would definitely say so. I don't think it's excluded, you know. Here's a question that I don't I have no idea where this is going to go. Do you feel like there are like pitfalls in hyper individualizing faith? And on the flip side, are there like opposite contrasting pitfalls? for having like a only community vision of faith and belief? My gut says yes, but I don't know if I can articulate why. So hyper-individualism is something I've been struggling with a lot recently because, I mean, if if we're going to get down into my, uh, I don't know, my, my, my fundamental metaphysic is like, I, I would so like the world to be based on a metaphysic of libertarianism or even something mm. like free will, accountable individualism. I, I believe there's an open future ahead of us. I, I'm very much against like determinism or compatibilism. I think there's, there's a lot more. I I think we all have like a tremendous amount of responsibility to conduct our individual lives in an upstanding way that contributes to a group. So Again, but it comes for me, it always it still comes back to contributing to a group. So I I can't be an island all on my own and expect to grow. Like, quite honestly, that would be boring if I just started assuming that my way was the highway or the right way Mm. Um, just because I was alone in that. I think what we gain in community is, uh, I don't know, again, putting it in biblical language, like iron sharpens iron, like we get to bump up against one another and shave off the rough edges and the rough corners of our personalities or of our attitudes and whatnot. And I I, I don't see any other way to get that kind of outcome without being in community in some way. So hyper-individualism, I want to say that's, that's unhealthy. I haven't explored the, like the strictly collectivist idea yet, but I'm, I'm also skeptical of that because it feels like in a philosophical realm, it will devolve way too often into utilitarianism. Mm. That being, okay, if we if there's a hundred of us, if fifty one of us have a positive outcome, then that is like the moral good mm. uh, based on any event or causal 
uh, relationship. So I think too much collectivism also pushes us into utilitarianism in that way so that we have, so we have to balance those. Right. And I think the main thing that we have to like that keeps it all in cohesion is that trust element where individuals can trust each other as they collect themselves into a new entity that they call the church community or that they call their AA group or that they call their volunteer group. Since we're mostly talking abstractly, what do you think would be good examples of like a hyper individualized religious experience versus like the hyper collective? What would be like a couple pinpoints we could point to? Hmm. I would imagine the hyper individualist would be like the person that feels like all I need is a relationship, which I don't know why I'm in a Southern accent. I'm sorry. That was a caricature. Um, like all I need is my relationship with Jesus. I don't need a church. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Like I can be a Christian on my own, kind of like a, like a religious libertarian. Mm. That's mm-hmm. what I have in my mind. And then I think if I, if I think of a, like a collectivism where there's almost no individualism, I think of like the extreme mega church where like it's so large and collective that like the individual almost can't be identified as a part of a social Yeah, like dynamic. they kind of fade. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Well, yeah. See, see, but I would, I I don't know. I'm I'm tempted to put both those personalities in the same building. Like I mm. think the same people who are going to a mega church could also be the kind of people given uh, just a, a dose of cynicism. They could become the hyper individualist. Mm. I don't need a church like, like that, you know, huh. because yeah. a mega church is so you, you reach a point of diminishing returns where the room is so large, the band is so loud, the sermon is so long that now it's still back to like, how are you doing this thing? Like so many, right. my, at least my experience in mega church setting is you get into the room and all of a sudden you feel like you get to let your neighbors in the row with you just kind of melt away and you just get to have mm. your, your personal worship experience. Oh, that's a good point, actually. I think that's also reflected in the, in the, the sermonizing attitude of mega churches. Again, like I'm, I keep calling it the Christian Ted talk, but that's kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of where it's headed. When, when you're reaching 50 to 60 minutes of one guy talking again, an individual talking about more often than not, it seems like he's talking about himself or like stories of his personal life at how it relates to the two verses that he presented as the the baseline for what he's calling a sermon. Whereas a a community that's headed, I think, in the right direction toward more community acts of like liturgical work together. I'm I'm gonna bring Emily up again. Like the fact that she only speaks for 15 minutes for a sermon, I think is flipping amazing mm. because it doesn't make it about Emily anymore. Right. Because yeah. like I I I personally I don't know the name of Joel Osteen's church, but I know Joel <laughs> Osteen's name. Right? Yeah, sure. But And that's because it's still individualistic. But also, Stephen, how many times have you told someone that you grew up in a Baptist church and they felt like they knew what church context you grew up in, regardless of who your pastor was? I feel like I've gotten that reaction a couple times. Like, I'll be like, yeah, I grew up in Baptist churches. And I would like get a certain reaction sometimes. And pretty soon I had to clarify like, oh, no, no, no. Not like that kind of Baptist. Like, it was a little different. Like, I don't know. I feel like even if we do have this like individualized mm, sermon centric mega church. I think that we still have like these collective identifiers that people still like have these ideas of. That's true. But most mega churches don't subscribe themselves to a denomination. So okay, that's a good you have point. to go yeah. and like take their, you know, their month long crash course where they give you free pizza mm-hmm. and they teach you about what it means to like go to this church and volunteer on this team. Like, you don't you don't know anything about them just from the outside whereas you can say oh emily is a methodist reverend and mm. for the most part we can at least assume some big picture things about methodism in general i know there's splits inside methodism as well uh but at least you get the big picture stuff so i i actually think that the ability to define based on like denominational beliefs uh 
I I think that's a separate discussion from individualism because then mm. that is just getting us back to a conversation about how we're going to uh define what it means to, you know, be the the, the Baptist team with the red jerseys versus the mm. the Methodist right. team with the yellow, okay. you know? Yeah, good point. Good point. It's like it's like the theological rule book versus uh versus it coming around I don't know, a single person's ideas or whatever. Hmm. Well, so Stephen, you brought up a good point about um, in megachurches how you can be sitting in this huge room and, you know, you can essentially let yourself kind of fade into this more personal setting, even though you're amongst, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. But I would also argue that can actually happen, I feel like, in small congregations as well. Hmm. I think it has to do with the individual mentality as well as like the collective identity. So like in megachurches, there might be some where you don't get to feel that that personal, you know, that that time to yourself or mm. it may be hard that you fade into the crowd. And so you kind of lose that more personal element of worship or or spirituality. But I also feel like in, in like in smaller congregations, that is very plausible to happen where, you know, in church today, I just had probably 50 people in the pews and, you know, each one of them came up to me and they each shared a very individual perspective of what they got from the sermon. And they were able to still be in this collective space together, singing the songs together, doing the unison prayer together, but they could fade into this own little mm -hmm. bubble and experience something that the person sitting six feet away may or may not be experiencing in the same way. And so I'm wondering if it's not just the fact that it's a mega church or just a small church. I'm wondering if it has to do more with where the churches are located. Like, is there something in the community at large mm. and how religious, you know, institutions have held services and how society views religion that allows those moments to take place? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I definitely think there's something there, but I, I, so first of all, I just want to say that I think that the experience you had today, th like this Sunday, I think that experience is like a healthy version of what we're talking about because, b because at least, I don't know, this, this is where we're coming to like the middle of the Venn diagram and we're finally seeing like healthy individualism balanced with healthy, uh, like collective action and people get to act the liturgy out together they get to um uh, quite literally just like share a piece of themselves in the whole group i think what i missed about megachurches is that i think this might open up a whole nother can of worms but i think there's an element of individualism always comes with consumerism and i think in megachurches well i don't know if i can say always comes with consumerism but i think it's it, individualism promotes consumerism in a way that uh, mega churches will quite literally market too, uh, because mm -hmm. it's all, it's, it's, it's quite literally like come here, get your rock concert with the flashy lights and all this, like, and get, get the nice talk that gives you the warm fuzzies and then like go about your week. Because like the, I don't know that, that probably sounds super, super cynical, but I think like the, the flashier it gets, the more. I do think that's an interesting point, though, that you bring up as like a as a pitfall. Of, well, like what you would see as a pitfall of hyper individualized faith. Is like you do kind of mm -hmm. fall into a consumeristic mindset sometimes, which is interesting because that is more of a front end thing, like first exposure versus like a back end thing, like personal salvation. That's kind of an interesting parallel, right. I think. But you're also making me think of how. uh. Like, for instance, I think that an easy parallel to this conversation is like the contrast between psychology and sociology, like psychology being so focused on the individual and like we can see the good things in that and sociology being so focused on like the study of society and groups. And like, yeah, there's there obviously go. a very different uh, approach and like very different things to study. But then there's like the overlap of social psychology, which is the study of the individual within the group. And like, you don't even have to do much research to find out that individuals act very differently and have a different experience when they're within a group versus like literally on their own. 
like in a therapy session. Right. And I feel like that's the, that's the interesting part to me about, about this. I'm trying to think of like an equal or maybe not equal, but like maybe an antithesis pitfall of like a hyper collective sense of faith. But to be honest, I haven't, I don't think I've experienced that yet. So maybe I can't speak to that. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's kind of the boat I'm in. Like I, I, right now, something more collectivist in nature. I don't know if collectivism is the right word even, but like something more community centered, um, is a lot more appealing to me than an individual experience. And again, I'm worried that that (laughs) all my indictments of mega churches today have uh, just all sound like a a cynical backlash to (laughs) my previous church contexts. Um, to all mega churches, Stephen is sorry for the words that he has just spoken. Right. Because again, I don't want to make one experience. I, I mean, this speaks to the conversation is my individual experience is not the experience of the group at large. Mm. Like that church is doing good things. I truly believe they're doing good things, but my individual experience, I came to a point where I felt like I was lacking. And again, it could be totally, totally my fault. And maybe I wasn't doing my job to be generous in the group or offer my creativity or contribute in, in the right way, or like really foster a sense of trust between me and a couple other key people, um, that keeps that sense of community alive as we defined it, um, in our previous conversation, you know, let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wrote this Ubuntu word down with, with the quote, I am because we are. That's spelled U-B-U-N-T-U, just in case you. That's so good. So let me ask. Because we have, I am because we are. Talk me through what changes if we reverse it and say we are because I am. Hmm. I'm sure you can. Um, I think the reason why it's I am because we are is it's putting emphasis on on the we rather than the I. Right. So you're saying I exist because we exist rather than saying, well, we exist because I exist. Right. That. So I'm wondering if maybe. And when we say American, I'm speaking more to United States culture because America is such a broad term. We have Central America, South America, That's and right. they are very culturally different. And so in the United States context, I think we would be saying we are because I am like we cannot thrive if you don't have me. And mm. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if maybe that's how we see it. I don't know. Did you actually have a question, though, Steve? Like, well, I guess my question is like. By by flipping I am because we are to we are because I am, that seems to put the onus of responsibility in a different place when we say that. So if we were to flip it and say we are because I am, what that feels like to me is uh, that, that kind of gets to you have a responsibility to the group to be the most healthy you can be mm. so that the group flourishes and that you're actually contributing. Whereas... I am because we are, uh, and this, this might come down to my, my fundamental, uh, uh, desire for the world to be built on libertarianism is that (laughs) like, I am because we are feels like I'm being determined by way too many like agent or event causal actions outside of me Mm. so that it takes the responsibility off me. And it says, well, the group did this to me. I can't take on the responsibility for being X, Y, Z. I would, I would disagree. I would disagree a little bit. And I think it's because we're taking a term that's used in a more collective society and we're trying to place it in a more individualistic context. Yeah. And I also think part of that is when we when we just see the words I am because we are like you had just said, we're then saying, oh, well, there's all these societal things at play and it's, you know, enforcing all these things onto me. I don't even think that's, I don't think that's the lens or the intent of that term. Um, And I think, again, it has to do with a lot of it is translation and a lot of it is, is context and use. Right. Um, And I guess how I would see it is I am because we are is saying I am who I am. And yes, there may be, things in my community that may be affecting that but the community is helping me thrive and is helping me 
to be the most authentic person that I can be. And because of that, we as a collective can say that we are also authentic and thriving. And again, maybe in an American, more specifically United States context, that could be seen as a negative thing. You know, we see this idea of, well, this collective mindset is that controlling, is that taking away individualism to a point where you just become one of the whole, like you're lost in the in the flock, sort of speak. So I really don't know. It's a beautiful term, but then when you start to think it out and you have this mindset of a very individualistic society, does it take away the beauty of that phrase? I don't know. Hmm. Because of all of what we're imposing onto it, just given our biases and and our cultural uh, shaping. So there's this video of there's this group of people and they're like kneeling over a ledge and the, the ledge is like a circle shape. So they're all kneeling around this, this basically abyss of a hole. And they all have these giant wooden spoons. And in the middle of the hole, <clears throat> there's this pillar that has a pot of like soup. And everyone is trying to reach their spoon into the pot, but they can't feed it to themselves. And eventually one person like drops their spoon and then two other people start fighting and their spoons break. And, you know, every, there's just a mist chaos. Until finally someone takes their spoon, they dip it into the pot, and then they reach across the hole and they start feeding the other person. And then pretty soon everyone starts realizing, oh, I'm being fed because the other person has their spoon that's so long that they can't feed it themselves so they can feed me with their spoon. And then pretty soon everyone is feeding each other and the bowl is empty and life carries on. And so that's what I'm envisioning as Ubuntu is Mm. like, I have this ability to do something. If I can't do it for myself, maybe I can do it for other people. And it's like that reciprocal relationship, Stephen, like you were talking about last time with the the filling, uh, the water wheel that was just filling itself. Maybe that's what Ubuntu is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we in the United States can fully understand that if we aren't willing to give a bit of ourselves for the other. If we're so individualistic, pull yourself by your bootstrap, you know, fend for yourself, sort of speak. How do we live into that mindset of Ubuntu? I don't know. This might be a little late to introduce new terms, but I feel like this highlights the difference between individual, or no, excuse me, uh, independence versus interdependence. And that just because like a system is interdependent, that does not like that doesn't discount that things within it are independent. Like you can, like there is a difference between dependency and codependency versus interdependency. And I feel like that's what you're getting at here. This is good. You guys just like, yeah. Yep. You just won. You win. (laughs) No, because what, so Emily, what you're describing is, uh, so maybe I think where my skepticism is of like, what we're getting at is we can't necessarily put the group over the individual or the individual over the group. Rather, they sit on the same plane because kind of what you're describing is I am because we are is more of a support structure rather than a top down, like right. defining Stephen is like this because the group has predetermined that Stephen is like that. Right. So, and that is precisely where I'm misinterpreting given my, uh, my, my, my personal favor toward uh something like a libertarianism political or not like just as a metaphysic the the concept of a an individual having like free will agency over her life that seems so right to me but at the same time i can see where we can't just divorce the individual from the group and expect them to thrive it's like unplugging them you're human it's okay yeah exactly thank you thank you for this okay speaking of divorcing the individual from the group Here's a curveball that I have not wrapped my head around Ooh. yet. I, I've been thinking about this the last couple of days. Shoot. What do you think the role is in collective faith in contrast with an individualized faith? What is either one of those roles in what we might call a like belief crisis or faith transition? Do they oh. have different roles? Are they similar? Oh. 
do the, does either one like somehow protect or like or is predisposed more one way or the other? I think I think something that's going to be more collective in nature is going to take an individual's faith crisis and say, "Yeah, that's okay. You belong anyway, right?" Like, mm. like you don't have to believe the same things to eat the same bread and drink from the same or, cup. Uh, or is it going to be the other way around? Like when there's like so much focus on the group that it does end up becoming like the we over the you I. kick them out. Oh, like no, like you, you do believe it. Ooh. I don't know. Yeah, see, I haven't, uh, I haven't figured this one out. I'm not sure. Well, well, I guess. So, what were you leaning towards first? When, like, when this first popped into your head, what was the side that you were leaning on? And then, what made you kind of start tearing it apart and kind of teeter totter on the fence? Okay, that's a good question. My initial thought is that a super individualized view of faith like for instance like personal salvation personal relationship with the divine as like primary importance and also i think that leads into like personal belief i think that that might be more predisposed to belief crisis because then when all of a sudden there's any sort of like personal doubt or uncertainty there's like so much you like literally put so much mental and psychological pressure on the self to like not go that direction. And so like that my initial thought is like the individualized version to me seems more likely to like fall away from the community because there's less emphasis on like community ties and like social reciprocity and like we know that those things like literally bind a group together and that even if there's like individual variants within a group that like those seem to be the things that like literally keep people together like family bonds for instance like lots of families disagree with each other and like mm, more often than not there's like some sort of relationship okay yeah okay so that's kind of like my initial thought but then on the flip side i feel like the the pitfall of having a community being like hyper like community collective focused and like almost like almost to the point where they don't see the individual. Honestly, my mind like goes towards cults. Like there's no cult that is like hyper individual focused. Like it has to be hyper group, in group, out group, like group think focused to mm-hmm. like maintain control of the individuals. And it like, sure, it's almost impossible in kind of a bad way to like go through a belief crisis because there's like so much other things like keeping you there. And so I don't know, I guess I can see it like working both ways. So I'm not sure either one is predisposed towards a belief crisis, I guess. What do you think the difference is in these kind of dynamics when it comes to, okay, so keep it on the the faith crisis um, idea. Why, Why is it that someone who goes through a belief crisis, say, in the Jewish community, which certainly tends to be more collective focus Mm. uh why can someone successfully say you know i don't i don't believe in the tenets of judaism per se but they can still and they're still allowed to by the group say i'm culturally jewish Mm. Mm -hmm. and they get they get to like it's almost like they still belong to the group but they get to take the the mental or like the theological or belief-based aspects of group belonging and they get to take that somewhere else without being ever like kicked out from the group. Now, of course, there's examples like I'm not blanket statement saying anyone who grew up in a Jewish household household who doesn't believe that way is is never like ostracized or whatever. But like we have a term for cultural Judaism. But on the other end of things, you can't really be an evangelical unless you are you are an evangelical right like if you if you mm. all of a sudden start saying you don't believe the same things as your rest the rest of your evangelical friends you get to adopt a new group called exvangelical but you can't <laughs> <laughs> there's something sure, about like yeah. you can't stay in the group back there but at the same time like i have i have family who grew up catholic they personally do not believe in the tenets necessarily of catholicism but they still say my family's catholic Mm. Mm-hmm. there's something there 
And I, I think it, it's kind of playing I, to I, my hunch of more of a collection focus from certain communities will allow you to belong, but not necessarily, not necessarily believe together. I heard a joke recently since you brought this up, Stephen, about like two, two Irish Catholics and um, one of them being like, you know, man, I'm, uh, I'm just, I think I'm really losing my faith. Like I'm, I'm really doubting lately. Like I'm just really uncertain of like everything. And the other one goes, so like, are you going to, so what are you Protestant now? And the first one goes, no, I said I was losing my faith. I didn't say I was losing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. No, Stephen, I think you're touching on a really interesting thing. Like there are some groups and even like some religious groups where it does seem like you can kind of divorce the cultural from and maybe the community even from the theological. Right. Like they get to be independent within the interdependence of the group. Like you get to belong to the group. And I think that's what like the most healthy version of community is, is when you can be in community around something that, I mean, pardon the pun, but it's like sometimes theology comes down to life and death for some people. And for me, it's not anymore. Like my theology is not determining exactly like, I don't know, my afterlife destination. So for me, theology isn't life or death anymore. So therefore I feel like I get to belong to a lot more communities and a lot more groups because I'm able to like hold it with an open hand and be like, I don't know, not necessarily, but it depends on the group. Like if they require me to check the right boxes, then, then of course I don't belong to their community anymore because that's how they've defined it. Well, I'd also like to point out that your theology is also not life and death for you in the sense that your life is not under threat, depending on what beliefs you affirm. This is very true. Or whether you convert or something. Like, we don't experience that in America. That is we, a very good point. Don't. This is very true. That's a very good point. But even then, when theology is life and death, when it comes to concepts of real persecution, not fake persecution, <laughs> Sean Foyt. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Wait, what, what was that? What was that, Stephen? What was that? Sorry, sorry. Sorry, I muted him. I like I've been trying to get blocked by him for so long. I just muted him myself for my own health. So I'm proud. I took the higher road. I'm not. I'm sorry. (laughs) I digress. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, this this is fair. Like when it when it comes to very real religious persecution. Now, in my study of the church, though, is it still is it still belief centric when real persecution happens? Or is it more of the fact that we get to identify ourselves beyond just a belief but we're collecting ourselves you know like i don't think nero cared yeah probably not he just didn't like the fact that they weren't willing to say caesar is lord Mm. right like Mm -hmm. it was about him Mm -hmm. so persecution is more about the persecutor and their small egos or big egos than it is like what the other person believes i don't know that's that's a whole other can of worms Mm. that we could (laughs) yeah that's an interesting point i'm kind of like thinking back to my earlier comments about whether or not either one like independent libertarian view of faith versus like collective uh like we're in this together type of faith and whether or not either one is predisposed towards like belief transition honestly my mind goes back to paul like would we i know it's kind of using modern terms for antiquity but like would we kind of define what he went through as like a belief crisis and like having to completely reinterpret his religious community. Like, I think we would at the very least say like he came to new beliefs in Christ. But like there, I would Mm. argue there was like this reinterpretation. And I think that we can't forget the fact that like that happened in that collective faith context, not in a like hyper individual. I'm going off on my own to find the answers context. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. It's like he had it harder because he had a whole group to start talking to that is a good point nice one yes yeah yeah good observation mm, what were you gonna say Stephen? a plus well so like i'm just coming back to the the idea of like the role of individualism if we're gonna put a, a pin in it for now it seems like we would say that individualism and a more collective view of the world at least belong in the same tier or like on the same playing field 
you can't necessarily put one over the other, it seems like. Because if we're going to keep it in tension, we can't allow one to tip the scale in any, like, in, too far in any ooh, direction. Ooh, 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 What do you think? Ooh. Speaking of Paul, I just remembered that one verse that I don't know the reference of where he says, like, God will never give you more than you can handle. You've probably heard that one quoted before. Yes. If you're listening to this and you want to fact check me, just look it up on your own. We have Google. <laughs> um, the, if you, I hate to sound like theology broy, but if you look at the Greek, Paul is using the plural in the second you. He's saying, God will never give you, Stephen, more than y'all can handle. No way. That is good job, Josh. The Greek scholar in me is very thank proud. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I could tell you what word it is, but I don't know Greek. I only know English. Well, I can look up the verse and then I can tell <laughs> oh, you the perfect. word. That's Emily's so great. On yeah, it. You do that. She's ready. Um, I, I feel like that does get back to the idea of like, even if you would say the Bible's view of interdependence, like the individual's faith in context of religious community, that like you cannot separate them like they should be undivorceable like no one is yeah yep like yeah. replaceable like it would be foolish of us to think that like well christianity would be nothing without me so right yes <laughs> like no it'd be nothing without jesus <laughs> sorry <laughs> like you're not you're not indispensable <laughs> to a religious community <laughs> no matter how much right. you volunteer correct even even if you feel a lot of pressure as if you were the linchpin that keeps the whole thing floating. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixing terms there. But I mean, so bringing it back to this whole concept that was introduced by Rabbi Sachs, like we need a tension of I and we. We can't put one over the other ever, mm-hmm. it seems to me. I feel like what we're kind of getting at too is that like there's no, there, there's like no great synthesis of what it means to have individual faith in the midst of community faith. Like, honestly, my mind is going back to how, like, some older Christian traditions, like, practice confession as a sacrament, and that's obviously something very individual, but then there's Mm -hmm. also this sense of, like, a collective communal confession. Like, we confess that we have sinned, like, as a Mm. community. And that's, like, not even getting, we haven't even, like, touched the subject of, like, what it means, what salvation means as a community. That's a good point. Like, we didn't even really talk about that at all, which I'm kind of surprised about. But, like, I'm just, like, floating back to that idea that, like, it's kind of paradoxical. Like, I'm not saying that there's no answer or that we can't find, like, a quote-unquote happy medium. But, like, in some regard, it does seem to be kind of paradoxical. And I think that we even find that in the biblical text that, um, like, there's parts where Paul uses, like, you are all being saved by Christ. Like, and then there's other parts where it seems to be really individual, like his individual mystical experience with Jesus coming to him. Like that's personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe we're trying to like categorize or compartmentalize individual and communal when really they're just kind of interwoven. Mm. They're, you know, there's waffle brain and spaghetti brain, and maybe it's more of a spaghetti brain where, these individual experiences are kind of interwoven with communal elements and, you know, they kind of maybe tether at one point and then come back together. It's, I don't think, I don't really think we should be trying to like separate one or the other Mm. and maybe, I don't know, maybe we just like to have such structure that it's easy for us to want to talk about wanting to separate them Mm. and yeah. mm have an either or conversation rather than an and conversation. But then there's also like the experience of an individual feeling the want to divorce themselves from the religious community. That is true. And I feel like that's a whole different conversation too. (laughs) Like that's, that's a thing. That's a very prevalent thing right now. And I think it always has been, honestly, I don't think it's a new thing. Right. I mean, it sounds a lot like Steven, if we're being honest. (laughs) Well, but also me, but also my friends, but also in different ways. Right. And that's a very individual process. Yeah. But you guys are also doing it collectively. Yes. Yeah. There's also that. Like, there's like the growing number of like ex-evangelicals on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, Stephen, you brought up a good Mm -hmm. point that like there is, 
even in like leaving community, you can like find common ground in that. Almost a common grace, if you will. Oh no. Oh no. Nice. Oh no. Mm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So basically we're saying this is a question we cannot ravel out. (laughs) We can't pull it apart too much (gasps) because like it's so, it's so like braided together in a way that if we allow it to fray and we pull on like one specific thread and pull it all the way out, then we're in imbalance and all of a sudden now we're, we're, we're tripping ourselves over hyper this hyper that mm-hmm. or uh, well, and then you get into like defining wh- who you are and what group you belong to by definitely what group you do not belong to. Like that's, right. that's what I don't like about exvangelical movement is that all, all they're saying is I'm not that anymore. And it's like, okay, that's not interesting though. Like, what are you? <laughs> Where, what, like, where are you headed though? But Stephen, Stephen, that kind of gets into like apophatic versus cataphatic theology. Oh, and I feel like that's a whole nother conversation. That could be an entirely separate episode. I guess what I would feel confident in saying what I do hold to be true about this topic is that I think that when individuals are in a group together, they form a new body like a new thing that can like function as its own thing that like wouldn't function in a way if those individuals weren't a part of it. Like it is a unique experience. There's like a, not like a hive mind because like humans don't really do that. But, and I hate using the word mob mentality because there's a lot of negative connotations with that. But like people act differently when they're a part of a group and the group is different because of those individuals. And I feel like that's like the most important thing we should glean from this conversation. That like you can't like when there's when there's a group of people, you cannot divorce the community from the individuals or the individuals from the community. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean like that's that's yeah. what we call body of Christ in a post yeah, like New Testament world. Is quite literally like yeah. we're collecting ourselves around one thing, around something, and we become a new thing when we do so. And we get to call ourselves the body of Christ. But then for me, that raises the question of like the people who decide they want to leave that context. Like, what does it actually mean for them to leave? And do they? Because like that community was still a part of their story. And I think that's a really interesting question. Oh, oh yeah. Because the, the, that's very existential. the ripple effect out into their life is incalculable considering yeah. just even one encounter, let alone I was at that church for five years. How does that, how, how has that shaped Steven into the future? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause like well, you, Steven are still a part of that community in the sense that like you are still Steven and you were a part of that community. Yeah. Uh, so communities mm. transcend and, time in a way is what you're saying. Yeah, in some on. ways. Yeah. Like we kind of got at that last time a little bit, like class of 2013, right? We did. Yes. Yeah? We did touch on that. Mm-hmm. There is like a special connection for like those people that you went to youth group with. It's true. Yeah. Good. It's very true. So I guess what we're saying is we could keep going, but then we we keep arriving at these unless, and then we, we hit a new question. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know. Maybe we should just leave it there. Although I do want to have a discussion. I think about cataphatic versus apophatic. I think that'd be really interesting. I agree. Cool. Because outside of, uh, outside of discussing the, the nuances of those kind of modes of having faith, essentially we've, we ourselves have entered that like water wheel, just like dumping into the next bucket. Cause it's like, I'm an individual in community and the community mm. like is interdependent with me. And we just, mm. we just keep cycling through wowzers. What a, <laughs> what a wild, I love podcasting with you guys. It's so good. Thank you for this gift. Uh, I'm loving it too. Aww, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Well, okay. So to wrap us up this week, Huge thank you to Louis Zong uh, for the use of his song in full color off his album here. Go find his work on Spotify and uh, maybe buy some of it on Bandcamp, especially with uh, a world affected by COVID. Musicians more than ever are relying on people buying their music and not just streaming it. So go do that. Go support people that you like. Keep them alive until they can start playing live shows again. Uh, speaking of supporting people you like, um, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Also, email us at theravelpod at gmail.com. Send us things. Send us memes. Send us your dreams. Send us mean things. Whatever you want. Um, also, 
if you do have a moment when you're done listening to this podcast, if you leave us a review on iTunes or Facebook, that really helps us get good things going in the algorithm. It helps us get good. Yes. Yes. It really helps us get discovered by more people who want to listen to stuff like this. And um, frankly, we want to keep this going. So please do that if you have a moment. Yeah. Also, if you want to follow any of us on Twitter, uh, our show notes have our Twitter handles and Steve and I are quite active on there and we love the Twitter world. So I'm, I'm getting there. I'm we're getting training there. Emily. <laughs> I'm actively. learning. We're training Emily. <laughs> I'm a young Padawan. Very, very young Padawan. <laughs> the best thing I saw on Twitter this week was, I love how things go viral on there, was the Pope wears a tall hat because Jesus is under there controlling him Ratatouille style. I love that so much. <laughs> Partially because it's true, just so you know. It's probably wow. true. Wow. Okay. Controversial. It's true. Um, Emily, <laughs> would, you, uh, would you lead us off with a benediction? Absolutely. Whether you live by Ubuntu, whether you're learning about Ubuntu, or you're questioning individualism or collectivism, just know we are unraveling that with you. And we will eventually discover for ourselves what it means to unravel things together in this crazy world that we live in. Whoa. Nice. Amen. Welcome to No Normal People. I'm Steven. And I'm Dixie Lee. And this is a podcast where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. We think the best way to live is with curiosity, where we assume that everyone has something to teach us in some way. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. Right, so they could be thinking about tacos too. Well, that, or their own happiness, routines, and family. But most importantly, tacos. Well, to each their own, I guess. Which is the point of the show? The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire Sonder in yours. No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Follow us at No People Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And remember, the, the only, only normal people, people you know are the ones you don't know very well. well.